0: Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. If you haven't yet, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. As I was preparing this week, I had uh, two thoughts that were running through my head. The first is that we come this morning to how shall we say, a challenging set of verses. Uh, The thought that was running through my head is that I really wanted to be anybody this week in the church but the preacher. And I don't mean Solomon the preacher, I mean the preacher behind the pulpit. Why? Because well, these, shall we say, are a difficult set of verses. One commentator writes, this is one of those passages that sets preachers to pacing in their studies wringing their hands, asking, what does it mean, and how do I preach it? So this isn't isn't an easy set of verses. Another states this, it is hard to be satisfied with any commentary on this section. It is very difficult to understand. That is not what you want to read when you set down to prepare a sermon. Because Solomon, what he's going to show us here are some very hard things. He's going to say some difficult things. For example, notice there in verses 16 and 17. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So don't be too righteous? Or can we be a little bit wicked? about verse 28? Look there, speaking about his search for a righteous person. He says, one man among a thousand I have found. So I found one out of a thousand men, but a woman among all these I have not found. (laughs) One commentator says this statement is a notorious pitfall for the interpreter. And then he even goes on to say, it is difficult to explain it as anything other than a misogynistic remark. Is Solomon a sexist. So these are hard verses, beloved. Pray for me, please. But at the same time I had another thought running through my head this week. I had a second thought running through my head. That while these verses, they are notoriously difficult, they are extremely hard to interpret, at the same time, they are also surprisingly relevant. I found myself very Surprised this week. Why? How, how, how are these verses surprisingly relevant? And the reason is because these verses address one of the most perplexing, most puzzling, most troubling, in fact, most relevant questions you and I face today. Here it is, verse 15. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Why is it that the good die young, oftentimes, and the wicked live long, prosperous lives? Have you ever asked that question? Why do good people suffer and die, and yet evil people grow old and live seemingly peaceful lives? Isn't that a relevant question? The problem of evil and suffering in the world. I mean, is there another question that has created more problems, in fact, maybe created more atheists, more people who have rejected Christianity than this? And Solomon is going to address that question this morning. And so amidst all of these complexities then, we find this to be a very relevant passage. And here's what Solomon is driving at. If I could summarize it like this, here's what I would say. How to live this life when this life doesn't make sense. How to live this life when this life doesn't make sense. How are we to live? How are we to act? How are we to think about this perplexing, paradoxical world in which we live? And Solomon is going to address this mystery, this problem of sin and evil in the world, and beloved, I think what we will discover is that this text shows us our need for a savior. Our need for our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, in this book, Solomon, he is showing us life as it really is. He is he's painting for us a realistic picture of life under the sun, and he says about this life, that famous line, if you remember, it is vanity of vanities. Meaning that this, this life is a vapor, it is, it is brief, it's, it's futile. I walked out of my house uh, one morning this week, and not only did I have to scrape ice off my windshield for the first time, but I could see my breath there. And in the same way, this life is like that, Solomon says it's brief. It's, it's a breath, it's a vapor. And it is oftentimes perplexing. It doesn't always make sense. And so then if we try to discover the meaning of life, if we try to discover the purpose of life from strictly the perspective under the sun, Solomon says, we'll come up empty. No, we need God's perspective. We need this vertical wisdom this vertical perspective here. And so here in chapter seven, Solomon is giving us a picture of real life, and he doesn't sugarcoat it, he is a, he's he's a, realist, a realist, and he wants, wants us to take a very, very honest view of the harsh realities of living in a fallen world, world with all of its perplexities, all of its complexities, all of its frustrations, and to do so with wisdom. I told you a couple of weeks ago that Solomon, as he enters now, notice into the last half of this book that he's really answering two questions. There's two questions that sort of set the structure of part two of this book. The first question, notice there, in chapter six, at the end, in verse 12, first part of verse 12, here's the first question. He says, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Who knows? The second question is found at the end of verse 12 there, where he says, Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So these are the two questions he's addressing, he's answering. In other words, who knows what's best, and who knows the future? And we said the answer to both of those questions is God. Man doesn't know, but God does, and therefore, we must trust him. And so now, here in verses 15 to 29, Solomon is continuing to answer that first question. Who knows what is best? Who knows what is good for man? And again, we find that refrain, man doesn't know. Look there again, in our text, verse 24 That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Who knows? Or verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Meaning I'm searching, I'm searching, I'm searching to find it out, but I I haven't found it. Who knows? It's all the next. Or another way to ask it would be, how do we live in a world that often doesn't make sense? Is this life ever perplexing to you? And so Solomon says, we need wisdom. We need, we need God's wisdom and he offers us here three ways we live in a world that often doesn't make sense. Three ways. Let me give them to you. Number one, we avoid the danger of living in extremes, verses 15 to 18. Second, we accept the reality of living in a fallen world, verses 19 to 24. And then third and finally, we acknowledge that the root problem is sin, verses 25 to 29. So how do we live this life when this life doesn't make sense? First, I want you to notice, we must avoid... Here's how we live. We must avoid the danger of living in extremes. Living in extremes, verses 15 to 18. Look there, we see here, in verses 15 to 18, two extremes, two dangers that Solomon warns us to avoid. But before we look at those, Notice in, in verse 15, Solomon is perplexed by something. And it's a paradox, I, I think, that confronts all of us, right? First notice the paradox in verse 15, the paradox. Look there. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing? Friend, have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do good people die young and evil people live long prosperous lives? Why? That's, that's a paradox, right? Why is that? In verse 15, notice Solomon apparently, he, he's, he's lived long enough to see it all in his vain life, meaning his his brief life. That's that Hevel word there again. His brief life. and, 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 And what he has observed is that some righteous people die young and some wicked people grow old. It doesn't seem right. It seems unfair, doesn't it? As Billy Joel said, only the good die young. It seems. In fact... It even seems to contradict what the Bible teaches. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, I love to quote this one to my children. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So God tells Israel, hey, if you obey your parents, you'll be blessed with long life in the land. Long life. Or how about Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. If you, the the writer of Proverbs says, if you fear God, you'll live long, but if you're wicked, you won't. But here, notice in verse 15, Solomon observes that sometimes the opposite is true. It doesn't cover every situation in life. No, sometimes... The good die young. Verse 15. The righteous perish, and the wicked prolongs his life. Sometimes, life just isn't fair. And listen, the Bible owns that. Right? It doesn't hide that fact. Alright? Christianity doesn't try to pull the wool over people's eyes to say, if you follow Jesus, your life's going to be easy, and you're going to live long, and you're not going to suffer. No. No. And we don't have to look very hard to find examples of this, do we? Even in the Bible. There's examples of this all over Scripture. For example, the story of Cain and Abel. Four chapters in. And righteous Abel is murdered by his wicked brother Cain. And Cain, it seems, marries, has children, and lives through a ripe old age. How about Stephen in Acts chapter 7? You remember Stephen? this young godly man in the early church who was stoned to death, it seemed, before his time? Or how about the most righteous man that ever lived? Jesus Christ lives only into his 30s and dies. It doesn't seem fair, does it? But no doubt, many of you have probably have personal stories of this as well. Just last year, a good friend of mine uh, from seminary, we were members of the same church. They were such a godly couple. He was a, he was a doctor of philosophy. I mean, just a brilliant mind. He loved Jesus. He and his wife were coming home from a date one night when just one block from their house, Their car was struck by someone drag racing and they were both killed, leaving behind four young children. And yet that very same year, Hugh Hefner lives to the ripe old age of 91. And we ask, why? God, why would you allow that to happen? It doesn't seem fair. In fact, the psalmist is perplexed by this as well in Psalm 73. Verse 12, where we read, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Meaning, it seems all for nothing to live righteously. Have you ever asked those kinds of hard questions? And then, notice Solomon offers us two very surprising, almost confusing warnings. In fact, Pastoral applications in light of this. Look there. Not only the paradox, but look at the extremes in verses 16 and 17. The extremes. So, in in, in light of this paradox in verse 15, look what he says. He says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? What did he just say? <laughs> did Solomon just say it's okay then to be a little bit wicked? Sort of a, a middle of the road kind of approach here, right? Righteousness and wickedness and moderation. Is that what he is suggesting here? Well, let's be clear. That's, that's, that's not what he's saying. Because frankly, that, that would contradict everything that the rest of the Bible says as well as other places in this book. No, he isn't, he isn't saying sin in moderation. What is he saying? Well, Solomon, he wants us, here's what he's after, to avoid two extremes in life in response to this paradox in verse 15. Because the, the temptation, I think, here in light of this would be to go to one or two extremes. And those two extremes would be to try and be too righteous... Or the other extreme would be, try and be too wicked. Extreme number one. Notice there, verse 16. He says, don't be too righteous. Don't be too righteous. Look at verse 16. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Now the key word there is the adjective overly. Verse 16, do not be overly righteous. So. Solomon isn't saying don't be righteous. What's he saying? Don't be overly righteous. Meaning that in light of this sad reality in verse 15 that the righteous often die young, don't assume then, he's saying, don't assume that the answer then is to try and be more righteous. Because the temptation is, and I'm sure that you've all experienced this, if 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 I am suffering, if bad things are happening to me, then God isn't pleased with me. And therefore, I need to try harder to please Him. And not only that, I need to be more righteous, I need to be more religious, so that bad things won't happen to me and I'll live longer. And sometimes, this mindset even emerges that because I've lived a righteous life, because I've been faithful to the Lord, then my life should be immune from adversity. Lord, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve to be treated like this. I've tried to obey you. I've tried to be righteous. I've tried to raise my kids the right way. Why is this happening to me? In fact, notice the result if you try to live like this. To be overly righteous, verse 16. Why should you destroy yourself? One commentator writes, those who think they can prolong their life by being super righteous and super wise are headed for destruction. And Solomon says, beloved, beware of this extreme. Beware of thinking that bad things only happen to bad people while good things only happen to good people. You see, I think there is, even among many Christians, this this innate belief that we, we we should get what we deserve. If we've been good, then we deserve good. And if we've been bad, then we deserve bad. But listen to me. That is not what the Bible teaches. You know what that's called? Karma. You know what karma is? It's, it's in many Eastern religions which says that you get what you deserve. And if something bad is happening to you, then you've done something bad. Perhaps in previous life, even. And if you get something good, then you've done something to deserve it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. No. And so we need, church, to... Settle in our hearts and minds that our righteousness, and and by righteousness there he means our our obedience to God. This isn't the imputed righteousness of Jesus that we get by faith alone. No, our obedience to God, it doesn't determine the length of our days. No, God does. Nor the amount of difficulty in your life. And if, if your life is going well right now, then don't assume you've earned it. No. Be thankful for God's grace in your life. It is an undeserved gift. You know what you deserve? It's a gift of God. It's all grace. And if things are going poorly, don't assume that God is punishing you either, which may or may not be true. Think of Job. You know, sometimes... The wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And Solomon says, this is the sad, cruel world in which we live. So don't try to be too righteous. Don't assume that God owes you something by your efforts. That's not grace. That's not the gospel. That's one extreme, but look at the other extreme. Extreme number two, don't be too wicked either. Don't be too wicked. Verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now again, (laughs) Solomon's point isn't that it's okay to be a little wicked. Like there's an acceptable level of wickedness. No, rather he's saying there is also great danger in giving ourselves over to evil as well. That's, you see, that's the other extreme. Because the temptation might be then, okay, well, if, if the wicked live long and prosper, then what's the point of being righteous at all? Right? And Solomon, notice he has a word of wisdom here in verse 17. Look what he says. Why should you die before your time? One commentator says, The danger of being this kind of fool is obvious. Such lifestyles are hardly known for their retirement homes and good pensions. In other words, if you live an overly wicked, evil life, chances are you're not going to live long. That's the other extreme. Being too righteous. Being too wicked. No. The reality, he says, is we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. This world is broken. This world is subjected to futility. This world is cursed. And so we live in this paradoxical place where righteous godly people die young and evil wicked people live long. And if that bothers you, it bothers Solomon too. And so, if we need to avoid avoid both extremes, then how do we live when life doesn't make sense? And the answer comes in verse 18. Look there. Not only the paradox and the extremes, but the answer. The answer, verse 18. What's the answer then? Solomon says, It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, meaning the teaching that he just said, verses 16 and 17, for, here's the answer, The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Meaning both of these extremes. So what's the answer? Solomon says, the way to avoid both of these extremes of trying to be too righteous and trying to be too wicked is to fear God. To fear God. To to live with awe and reverence before Him. To, to trust him in his word. This is one, remember, of the great themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is fearing God. In fact, this whole book, notice in chapter 12, look there, as we've seen, is driving us to the very end of this book in chapter 12, look there at verse 13, where the, the narrator is going to tell us The end of the matter all has been heard. This is what it's all about, he says. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed, every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the answer to avoiding both of these extremes, he says, is fearing God. To fear God. Now, why is that? How how does fearing God, think about this, help us avoid both of those extremes? Being too righteous and too wicked? Well, think about it. Because if we have, church, a proper fear of God, then we won't think of ourselves as too righteous. We're not going to think God owes us anything. No. we. We will know that any good gift that comes to us is only because of undeserved grace. And that God sees us as we really are. We, we aren't righteous. And we could never be righteous. So we won't pretend to be something we're not. We won't try to attain something we can't. No, we won't, we won't seek to be too righteous. It is only, it is only through... Faith in Jesus Christ. That we are declared righteous. It is based on the finished work of Jesus alone. That we can stand before God with any righteousness at all. And we have no merit of our own to bring. And at the same time. On the other side of the coin. If we have a healthy fear of God. It will also help us avoid the other extreme. Of living an overly wicked life. As if sin doesn't matter. Why? Because not only will we have a proper understanding of the holiness of God and the judgment of God, but also recognizing that there is a day of judgment that is approaching for us all. And the wicked, no matter what they have experienced in this life, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We can't escape it. And only those who are standing clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be able to stand on that day. And Solomon says if you truly fear God, you'll avoid both of these extremes. So this is how you, you live when life doesn't make sense. You fear God. You, you fear God, with, with, with trembling trust you worship him, that regardless of whether there's sweet or bitter providences he brings into my life, I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna trust him. But there's a second way. Look there, point number two. We must also, Solomon shows us here, accept the reality of living in a fallen world. Look at verses 19 to 24. We we must accept the reality that we live in a broken world. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is wisdom. And I wish you could say it gets easier here. But it doesn't, because now, look in verses 19 to 24, Solomon gives us here several, at first, seemingly random proverbial sayings or statements about how to live wisely in a world that doesn't always make sense. Look at verse 19, he says, wisdom gives strength to the wise. So this this is about living with wisdom in a world that's often confusing but you must live in light of these realities. Notice I I, I see here in in these verses two realities. Two realities. Here they are. Number one. Reality number one. We must understand that even the wise are fallen. Even the wise are fallen. Verses 19 to 22. We live in a fallen world. And so even the righteous still sin. I mean, wisdom may help us be faithful in life, but it can't make us perfect. Look at verse 19. Solomon begins here by speaking positively about the value of wisdom. Look what he says. He says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So notice the value here of wisdom, of living wisely. He's saying it's, it's better to live with wisdom, to live wisely. In fact, look what he says. He says, wisdom gives more strength than ten rulers to a city. So imagine, imagine a city with ten rulers. That's a strong city. Right? That's a, that's a full number. That's a perfect ten. And yet, wisdom, he says, living wisely gives even more strength to the wise than 10 rulers back later look at chapter 9 verse 16 he says wisdom is better than might wisdom is better than strength that's my reason for not lifting weights <laughs> all right i want to be wise it's better so wisdom gives you strength it helps you live a better life than living like a fool it's good to be wise he says And yet, look at verse 20, as helpful as wisdom is, Solomon says, even the wise are still flawed. Even the wise still sin. They they are imperfect. Look at verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So verse 20 Solomon, a lot like the Apostle Paul in our passage last week, is describing here the universality of sin. We're going to see this even more clearly when we get down into verses 25 to 29, but he's describing here how all of humanity has fallen. We are all flawed. Even the wisest among us still sin. In fact, in verse 20, look there, it sounds an awful lot like what Paul says... If you remember in in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, None is righteous. In fact, it's the exact same wording here in Ecclesiastes. There are many who think that in Romans 3, verse 10, Paul is actually quoting from Ecclesiastes, which would be the only place that this book is quoted in the New Testament, by the way. But nonetheless, what he's saying here is that sin is universal. And that even the most righteous, even the most wisest people on the planet sin by missing the mark. All have fallen short, he's saying. Now that is not a real popular message. People don't like to be told they're sinners. They're guilty before God. I remember, I think it was Francis Schaeffer who said one time, if he had an hour on a train to share the gospel with someone, he would spend 45 to 50 minutes talking about the bad news and 10 to 15 talking about the good news. Oftentimes in our evangelism conversations, we want to jump to the good news and we haven't yet shown people how bad they really are. And that's exactly what, Paul, uh, what Solomon is doing here. We live in a fallen Sinful worlds. And then notice, in order to demonstrate this is true, that we're all sinners, he gives us here a concrete example, an illustration of how we can know everybody's a sinner. Here's the proof. Here's the evidence. Look there, verses 21 and 22. He says, Here's how you can know. Just take a look at the human tongue. Look at verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So Solomon says, If you want to know that all mankind is sinful and flawed and fallen and evil, look no further than the human tongue. The doctrine of sin is seen most visibly on our lips. One commentator said, "The proof that all human beings are inescapably flawed is right between our teeth." Verse twenty-one. He says, "People will slander you. People will gossip about you. People will curse you." Has that happened to you? Happened to me just this week on in the car ride. Daddy, what does that finger mean? Verse 21, you may even eavesdrop and hear your own servant cursing you. And Solomon says, that shouldn't surprise you. Verse 21, nor should you take it to heart. Why? Because we understand that we're all flawed. We're all sinners. The philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal, he once said, if all men knew what each said of the other, there wouldn't be four friends on earth. But that's not the only reason we shouldn't be surprised by this doctrine of sin. Look at verse 22, lest we get overly righteous, right? Too righteous, look what he says, because also your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others you've done it too no i haven't yes you have you are a man of unclean lips as well so the issue here is that it's all around us sin is it's in us it's around us And we don't have to look very far, we don't have to look any further than our own mouths to see the total depravity of man. We live in a fallen world and all parts of who we are, every part of humanity has been infected by sin. Interestingly, in in Romans chapter three, I want you to turn there for a moment, hold your place in Ecclesiastes. In Romans chapter three, Did you ever notice here how in this long list of sins that Paul gives here to show us that all mankind is guilty? That's what he's doing in Romans 3. Did you ever notice how many of those sins are sins of the tongue? Look there in chapter 3, verse 10, quoting from several places in the Old Testament, perhaps here in Ecclesiastes. He says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And then where does Paul turn for proof of this? That no one's righteous. Verse 13, our mouths. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And so Paul says, lest we deny Ecclesiastes 7.20, that none is righteous and that all people are sinners, just look at the way people talk about each other. And so again, he's he's driving us here to accept the reality that we live in a fallen, sin cursed, flawed world. It's been tainted by sin, and this is a universal problem. But he recognizes not only here our moral limitations, Solomon does, but our mental limitations as well, our human reasoning. Because look there in verses 23 and 24 now, chapter 7. Look there. There's one other reality he he wants us to accept. Not only that the wise are fallen, there's reality number two, even wisdom can't understand all of God's ways. Wisdom can only take you so far. That's all I'm gonna say. Look at verses 23 and 24. All this, meaning this this paradox he's mentioned in, in, in verse 15. All this I have tested by wisdom, meaning I'm I'm trying to make sense of it through my human wisdom, my brain, my finite, limited understanding. He said, I will be wise, but it was far from me, meaning I I can't get to the bottom of this quest through wisdom of explaining all of these why questions that he has. He's searching and he's searching, but he can't find the answer. And then look at verse 24 that which has been is far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? In other words, mere human observation can only take you so far. And Solomon has no answer. Verse 24, who can find it out? And the answer is no one. So friends, Solomon is saying, It is beyond our human reasoning, it is beyond our human understanding why God directs and allows and purposes things the way he does. He is God and we are not. He alone is perfectly righteous. He alone is all-knowing. He alone is all-wise. He is God and you are not. Isaiah 55, verse 9, the Lord says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than yours. He's God and we're not, and so all we can do is simply admit that we don't have all the answers. And so not only do the wise still sin, But even the wise aren't that wise after all. (laughs) Which leads us to the third and final observation of how we are to live when life doesn't make sense. So is, is there an answer then to this problem of suffering and evil in the world? And of course, one answer could be simply that we we just can't know all of God's ways right in fact if you remember back chapter 7 look there verse 13 he says consider the work of god who can make straight what he that's god has made crooked meaning that there are going to be things in this life that just seem crooked to us but god is sovereign over them and he has a he has a purpose in them that's one answer But there's another answer to this question Solomon gives here of of why sin and evil in the world. Why, Lord? Number three, we must acknowledge that the root problem is sin. Verses 25 to 29. So look here, Solomon, what he's doing now is he's exploring more deeply now this issue of sin in the world. And he says that this really is the problem with the world. This is what's wrong with the world. Not to be too overly simplistic, Solomon says the problem with this world is sin. This is why the world is the way it is. It's because of sin. Verse 25. I've turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheming of the scheme of things. So he's searching diligently. He wants to know. He wants to understand and, and he's investigating here more deeply this problem of sin. Look at verse 25, the wickedness, the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So he's, he's turning his heart and mind to think and contemplate more deeply the doctrine of sin. And as he does so, in his search, he finds three things. Three things. Your, your, your translation may say discovers. He finds three things. Here they are. First, look at verse 26. I find something more bitter than death. Second, verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. And then third, finally, verse 29. See, this alone I found. So he's searching, investigating this problem of sin, and he finds three things. Three things, but before we look at those three things, (laughs) I wish I could say the difficulty here lets up, but it doesn't, in fact, it might even get more difficult. So let me just give one caveat, okay? Before we look at verses 26 to 29. It's important to understand that Solomon isn't a misogynist. He isn't a sexist, he isn't degrading women. He isn't looking down on women. He doesn't think they're less than men. He doesn't think they're inferior to men. He isn't saying that all women are bad. Okay? No. In fact, the Bible actually says the contrary. The, the scripture has a very high view of women. I mean, look no further than Proverbs 31. Right? The virtuous woman. Luke chapter 8, right? There are many godly women who are following Jesus. Right? First Peter chapter 3, Peter says that a godly woman is very precious in the sight of the Lord. So he's not saying all women are worse than men, they're evil and you've got to know that going into this passage. Why? Because at first, you might bristle at what he says. So I just, I want to give that caveat because I don't want you to send me any emails this week. <laughs> right? The pastor hates women. No. I'm just reading what the Bible says. Okay? So notice what he finds here about the doctrine of sin. Three things. Finding number one. Finding number one, the allure of sin. Or we could say the temptation to sin. Verse 26. I find something more bitter than death. What? The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, we could say chains, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, there's some knots here we've got to untangle. Is Solomon speaking negatively about women? No. No, he's not saying all women are predators, all women are seductive. No. So what is he saying? Well, some commentators think he's speaking here about a literal woman. He's talking about sexual temptation. Another thinks this is a reference back to the curse in Genesis 3, how married life now is going to be war instead of joy because of the fall. The woman's going to try to usurp her husband. But it seems to me, here's what Solomon is doing here. He's using the image of a seductive woman as a metaphor for the allurement of sin. The temptation to sin. He's saying that sin is very seductive. Look at verse 26. She has snares, nets, fetters. And the sinner is taken by her. So this is, I think, the allurement of sin. In fact, this is identical, I think, to what Solomon does in Proverbs. Where he talks about lady folly. He talks about the seductive woman. And avoiding her, right? He's writing to his son. What what better is going to catch your son's attention than a seductive woman? And he's doing the same thing here. He's He's reminding us here and warning us about the deadly snare of sin. Verse 26, It is something more bitter than death, sin is. So beware. So what are we to do? Look at verse 26. He who pleases God... Escapes her. Run. Flee. It's more bitter than death. And beloved, this is true of any sin that would tempt us, that would try to seek its hooks into us. And the proper response is not just to say no to sin. The proper response, verse 26, is I want to please God. He's reminding us here about the destructive power of nature of sin over all of humanity here. This is what's wrong with the world. The destructive, seductive nature of sin. And brothers and sisters, listen to me this morning. We must flee it in the power of Christ. Romans 6, verse 12 says, Let not sin reign therefore in your mortal bodies to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Why? As those who have been brought from death to life. This is the allurement of sin. Notice this second finding, though. The universal nature of sin. The universal nature of sin. Verses 27 and 28. Look there. Similar to what we saw in verse 20. And ironically, what Solomon finds here is what he doesn't find. Look at verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. So he's trying to add it all up. Which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. What has he not found? One man among a thousand I found but a woman among all these I have not found. Now again, more knots here to untangle. Solomon, why did you write this? (laughs) I found one good man out of a thousand, but zero women. Well, he isn't saying men are better than women. Women are evil. So what's he saying? Well, first, we must let verse 20 guide our interpretation here. What I mean is, Solomon has already told us there isn't a righteous man on the earth. So whoever this one guy is, he ain't that righteous. <laughs> okay? No, this is, this is a poetic way of speaking. This is hyperbole. But here's the second thing you gotta remember. Solomon, it seems, I I think what he's doing here is he's speaking from his own personal experience, his his own observation. This is autobiographical for Solomon. So So this is Solomon's Solomon's search. This is is not an objective fact about about men and women. In In fact, I think this verse says more about Solomon than it is about women. If you remember, Solomon, he chased godless women out of a thousand women in his harem 1 Kings 11.4 says these wives turned his heart after other gods no wonder he couldn't find a righteous woman so what is he doing here he's showing us the universal nature of sin the problem isn't men or women the problem is men and women There is none He has found who are fully righteous. No, all are sinners. Sin is pervasive. And even the best of us aren't righteous. We all fall short. So here's the verse 29. The culmination. Finding number three. Here it is. The origin of sin. The origin of sin. Look at verse 29. After all of his investigation, Solomon has found one thing to be true. One thing. Verse 29. This alone I have found. So what did he find in all of his searching? Only one thing. Look what he found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So verse 29, here's Solomon's conclusion now. It's that all of humanity is sinful. All have sinned against God, so there there aren't some who are righteous, and there are some who are unrighteous. No, he is saying all are unrighteous. All are sinful. Verse 29, look what he says there. God made man upright, so this is The doctrine of creation, meaning God, when He made man, He made Adam, He did so without sin. He was sinless. He was in perfect relationship to God and His creation. But, look at verse 29, they have sought out many schemes. Adam sinned. So did you and I. And that relationship was broken and humanity had fallen. And now we live in a world that's cursed. And what Solomon is saying, listen very closely, is he's saying, God isn't the one to blame for the problem of sin and evil in the world. He isn't the one to blame for suffering and injustice in the world. No, He made man upright. Now the problem is humanity. We are the problem. We have sought out many schemes. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we've turned to our own ways, he says. And so beloved, this is the problem with the world. The problem with humanity isn't economic, it isn't political, it isn't social, it isn't educational. The problem with the world is sin. And thus there is only one solution to the problem. We need a Redeemer. We need redemption. We need to be saved from sin. And the good news of the Gospel is that God has provided a Redeemer. And He's the only one who is righteous. He's the only one who is sinless. He was the only one who truly embodied wisdom. And He never committed a sin with His lips. And who died on our behalf. So that we could be credited with his own righteousness. And so that he could undo what the first Adam had done. And he could reverse the curse. And he could transform this fallen, pain filled world. And he could wipe away every tear from our eyes. And beloved, that's the only answer to the problem of sin. And so, what do we do with the problem of sin and evil in the world? We look to Christ. Because the gospel says, though God made man upright, and though mankind has sinned and rebelled against him, we have sought out many schemes. The second Adam, the last Adam, has come and he will come again. And he will undo everything that is wrong with this world and all that is sad will become untrue. As Samwise Gamgee says, what sin and death have brought into the world, he will reverse it. Redeeming grace for Adam's helpless race. Let's pray. Oh Lord, redeeming love has been our theme and shall be till we die. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus who is our great Redeemer. He's redeemed us from the power and the penalty of sin. Oh, Lord, may we live holy lives in this crooked world. Help us, Lord, to resist sin, to resist temptation, something more bitter than death. And may we seek to please you, to live lives that are pleasing to you, our God and our Redeemer. Help us, help us to trust you, help us to fear you when we, cannot see or understand. In the midst of all of our why questions, Lord, that remain unanswered, help us fear you and trust you. We trust you You were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com. Or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.